Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us a living hope that the resurrection of your Son from the dead is central to the message that we preach, that the calendars of the world affirm that something happened in human history, and we are grateful that we don't have to wonder that your infallible, inerrant, eternal word has recorded for us all that has transpired. We thank you that he was declared Lord when you brought him out of the grave and that a day is coming when every knee will bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. We come and are grateful that your word has given us the future, all that you are going to bring about. It's written here before us. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Give me grace to preach your word, to rightly divide it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book. Uh, I'm in a series right now. Typically, I take a book of the Bible and go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But right now, I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 15th message in this series. We started with the rapture of the church and the rebirth of Israel. And while the rapture is a signless event, it could take place at any moment. It's what we call imminent. The second coming of Christ is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen. And so the rebirth of Israel was a huge event. I suppose God, around 1000 AD, if he had so chosen, could have gathered the Jews from across the world and brought them back into the world and unfolded his prophetic schedule, but he didn't. He waited nearly two millennia before he did what he wrote of in the Old Testament prophets, what Jesus said in the New Testament, he gathered Israel back into the land. That's one of the super signs for the return of Jesus from heaven. And so it's important that we understand biblical prophecy. And sadly, the American pulpit today is ignoring the prophetic portions of Scripture. I think sometimes pastors don't want to be associated with the charlatans, the misguided zealots, the date setters, and all that goes with that. And so they don't speak on Bible prophecy. But nearly one-third 
of the Scripture is prophetic in nature, and pastors are commanded to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. So you cannot ignore Bible prophecy. And God gave us Bible prophecy to assure our hearts, to give us perspective as to what will unfold at the end of time. God himself said by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God declares the future and he wants you and I to know the future. And so we don't have to go to some seance. We don't have to go to some woman and get her to look in her crystal ball, both things that would be evil things to do. All we need to do is read Holy Scripture because God gives the beginning and the end. Here's a chart that might help you to gain some perspective as to where we are and where things are headed. We saw that the next great event on God's schedule is called the rapture. The word rapture comes from the Latin translation of the Bible that was used by the church for a thousand years. Every born-again Christian believes in the rapture. It's a central doctrine to Christian faith. Now, they may debate over the timing of the rapture, but we shall all be caught up. That's the word harpazo from Latin. We get our English word from Greek to Latin, rapture. And so after the rapture takes place, there's a space of time. We don't know how long, but it appears to be short. Weeks, days, possibly months. And then there will be a man who will step on the scene known as the Antichrist, the beast. There's some 30 different titles he has in Scripture. And he will sign a covenant And that will start the clock ticking for a seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9. Uh, It's called uh, the Great Tribulation Period. There's an event right in the middle of that seven-year period that's known as the Abomination of Desolation. And so we have been zooming in all these different things. Of course, the second coming happens after the seven-year period unfolds. Does it happen a day after, a week after, a month after? We don't know precisely, but it's a short time. It may explain the additional days at the end of Daniel chapter 12, but even then, no man can know the exact day or the hour. And so Jesus is second coming unfolds in a series of events. Just like his first coming was not a single event, but a number of things, his birth, his being raised in Nazareth, his public ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his walking on the earth for 40 days, his ascension into heaven. Even so, the second coming unfolds with this series of events. From the rapture where we meet the Lord in the air to his return to the earth where he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. And so we studied the first half of the tribulation, and Jesus outlines it for us in Matthew 24, 4 through 14. And he likens the first half of the tribulation to a woman in labor, a woman with birth pangs. And that's important. The birth pangs, as people will popularly say today, is, are happening. They're not happening yet. They are yet to happen. In fact, Matthew 24, 4 through 14 perfectly parallels the sealed judgments that we studied. However, it is significant what we are witnessing 
with our own eyes across the world because to have labor, you have to have a pregnancy. I believe what we are witnessing today are what we might call the Braxton Hicks contractions. I'm not a woman, but I think that's how you say it. (laughs) You know, it's amazing to me. I was listening to someone yesterday, and they were giving testimony of their newborn baby, and they say, we don't know whether we had a boy or a girl. I mean, that is just beyond belief. This is all part of the warped way of thinking that our world is embracing. And so in the middle of this seven-year period, the abomination of desolation takes place. Let me refresh your mind with the words of Jesus describing it. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, and Daniel pinpoints it right in the middle of the seven years, as does the apostle John, as does Jesus by what he describes what happens before and what happens after. When you see this event spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. So the abomination of desolation is a game changer. There's tribulation, awful things that happen in the first half. But once this event takes place, we move from the seal judgments to the trumpet and bowl judgments. And it goes from tribulation to what Jesus called great tribulation. And it is so intense, he will say a few verses later, that unless those days had been cut short, no person would have survived. Now, the abomination of desolation, I know a lot of people aren't sure what that even means. So as we've been working through Matthew 24, we're zooming in on certain particulars. So we talked about false prophets, and I had a whole sermon just on false prophets. We're speaking about the abomination of desolation that is going to kick in a globalism that the world has yet to see on three levels, governmentally, economically, and religiously. People often refer to this as the Great Reset. They say that what we are seeing in the world today is with the objective of having a Great Reset. Well, what their goals are, it will just be the preset for the Great Reset. And so it's not really anything new. The idea of wanting to change the fabric of the world goes all the way back to a man named Nimrod at the Tower of Babel who becomes a type and a picture of the coming Antichrist. In either case, some would say, well, the great flood was God's great reset. Well, it was. That was from heaven. But the first reset, so to speak, that man ever tried to pull off came through Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. And really, the greatest of all resets is going to come when Jesus returns. Now, with that said, this phrase, the Great Reset, as many of you know, has been coined by a man by the name of Klaus Schwab. He founded the uh, World Economic Forum in 1951. They meet every year in Davos, Switzerland. With them are the International Monetary Fund people, the World Bank, the United Nations, and over 100 countries 
are now represented. Presidents, prime ministers, now people have always, I suppose, different men in the history of the world wanted to rule the world, whether it's Lenin or Stalin or Hitler or the Pharaohs or the Caesars of Rome, but none have ever been successful. But there is coming a man that the Bible records who will have worldwide domination. And if you've studied the World Economic Forum, I say they are a preset for the coming Great Reset, being the Antichrist, because they have a globalistic mentality. You see, one of the great signs that we are living at the end of time is God tells us, one, at the end of time, he gather Israel into the land. He waited nearly 2,000 years to do that. You cannot see the final prophetic schedule unfold unless Israel's in the land. But what we also learn in Scripture is there has to be a global mentality. And that's really what we have today through the World Economic Forum. You see, they believe that many of the problems in the world today can be traced to nations and tribes and countries. But if somehow the nations of the world could come together, it would remove a lot of our problems. And so they're hoping to develop this global consciousness. And of course, what they're doing, while the term, the Great Reset, has been coined by Schwab, and people call it his brainchild, it's really not. It's Satan's brainchild. In fact, Paul tells us in the book of Acts, in the 17th chapter, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. See, they want to rid that. They want to get rid of global boundaries. There's a reason when man initially tried to rebel against God, and you can read of it in Genesis 10 and 11, that God brought Babel, the Hebrew word for confusion, where he confused the languages. Because God knew as one people under one language that evil could progress. We see it sometimes as an awful thing that we've got all these languages of the world to deal with. Actually, it's an expression of God's grace because it deters a lot of the evil that might unfold otherwise. With that said, the World Economic Forum wants to eliminate borders. Do you think it is by accident if the great senator who stood in this pulpit at one time from Texas said yesterday, he said four million, uh, 4 million immigrants, or aliens, I should say, not immigrants, aliens, from over, they say, 75 countries, have crossed the southern border into America. Now, our government tells us the border's secure. I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not a rocket scientist, but four million people just walking over, sometimes thousands at a time, not being stopped, just entering into our country. Oh, the border's secure. Why do they want this? I think part of their immigration mentality is driven by such things like the World Economic Forum. Now, they used to kind of hide this uh, mindset that they had and But now they live stream, they invite the media in, and there's really a shared ownership that they have in terms of wanting to bring about globalism. Among other things, they want to eliminate capitalism. And by the way, 52% of millennials now say that they are in favor of socialism. 
You say, does it really matter? It does matter because socialism is a denial of what God has written of in Scripture. God teaches that you can own personal property. If someone owns personal property, then indeed the commandment thou shalt not covet would make sense. If someone owns personal property, then the commandment thou shalt not steal will make sense. But the World Economic Forum at their most recent meeting in Davos tweeted this out. Welcome, they said, to 2030. I own nothing, have no prophecy, and life has never been better. That's the mindset. In regards to the recent COVID pandemic, Schwab wrote these words. The pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect reimagine and reset our world. So for them, COVID was not viewed as a catastrophe, but as an opportunity to further bring about globalism. Now, what is happening through the World Economic Forum will someday be realized through the Antichrist, because the WEF has goals on three levels. Again, economically, we'll look at that more next time. Religiously, we'll look at that today and some more next time as well and governmentally, three different levels. Now, do you think among, remember, it used to be called the New World Order, that's what they used to call it. Now their new phrase is the Great Reset. And the other phrase that the World Economic Forum uses is called Build Back Better. Do you think it is by accident that our president's signature bill is titled Build Back Better? There was a bill just written called the Inflation Reduction Act that most of you are familiar with, and it's dubbed, quote, the single largest investment in climate action in U.S. history and will profoundly alter the international landscape. When they met in May in Davos, one-third of all the talks and seminars concerned global warming. Why? Because they recognized the pandemic was an opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Because when you have a crisis, the nations of the world come together. And so really, for the first time in recorded history, the nations of the world came together via COVID like we had never, ever seen before. Why do you suppose our government wants to spend money into oblivion? I believe, and there's no doubt in my mind, and I hope to prove it to you in the next few weeks, to bankrupt the American economy and the nations of the world. See, if America goes down economically, the nations of the world will go down economically. The other world economies are principally indexed to the U.S. economy. And again, it will be a perfect, ripe environment for a new way in which to deal and handle money. And so what we're looking at today is the global religion reset. There's going to be a reset on the religious realm. Understand the World Economic Forum is not simply interested in economic reforms, but worldwide government reforms and, yes, religious reform. Now, with that said, I want to read our text, Revelation 13. If you don't have a Bible, you should come to meet the pastor. You will be lost in the sermons I preach without a Bible. It would be like going to a map reading course without a map. 
You need one here. I know you don't in most churches today, but you need one here. Revelation 13, beginning now in verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power in his throne in great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for activity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Now again, notice how the chapter opens. Verse 1, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are added almost a millennium after the Bible is completed. It helped us to find where we were at this morning. We don't have all these scrolls, and I say, turn your scroll 50 times, and you'll be about where I want you to be. No, we have codexes, books, Bibles, with all 66 books in them, and they're divided. But sometimes the chapter and verse divisions can be distracting. If you look back at chapter, seven, uh, chapter 12 and verse 17, and by the way, I'm going to review just a little bit for those who are new, but I know that repetition is the master teacher, and I want us to get this. Some lady last week said, I had no idea what you were talking about. Now, she'd only been a Christian a week, <laughs> and, I, and I get that, but understand there's something here for everyone. But the Bible is like learning math. First, you learn the numbers, then how to add, and eventually, maybe you'll learn even calculus. And so just pay attention. It will grow and it will develop your knowledge of Scripture and it will change your life. Verse 17 of chapter 12 says, So the dragon, who by the way is identified in verse 8 of that chapter as being the devil and Satan, most of the revelation is interpreted within the revelation or from Old Testament passages. So the dragon or Satan was enraged with the woman, the woman in the 12th chapter, of course, is Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The woman, Israel, is identified in the 12th chapter as having birthed the Messiah. The Messiah's salvation, Jesus said, is from the Jew. Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. And of course, those Jews who uh, did not Flee to the wilderness, as Jesus admonished us to do, or those Jews to do in Matthew 24. They probably will go to Petra, but somehow in the wilderness, there'll be some supernatural protection. Those Jews who either didn't heed that, or Gentiles who come to faith through the Jewish witnesses, were told that the evil one makes war with the rest of her children. And notice how they're described in verse 17 of that chapter. 
their children, the rest of her children, speaking of believers, are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Listen, when you're saved, your life changes. And if your life has never fundamentally changed, it just means you, you were not saved. The text says here they keep the commandments and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. They don't renounce him. They confess him. And that's what a true believer does because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away and everything's become brand new. There's a lot of deceived so-called evangelicals today who say, I've been saved. I may live like the devil, but I've been saved. Not according to the New Testament. It is true a believer can get out of fellowship with God, but if you have been saved, the direction of your life will change, and if it hasn't, you better change your religion because you don't have the real thing. Now, notice there's, if you remember, we discussed it last time, there's this satanic trinity that is operating during this seven-year period. Satan takes the place of God the Father, the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son, and the false prophet, whom we'll look at next time, he will serve like the Holy Spirit, and he will point men to the Antichrist. So Satan, we're told, in the 12th chapter, has only a short time, 42 months. So he goes wide open through his Antichrist to persecute those who find the Lord during that time. Now, we're told in the Revelation, in the very opening verse, if you pull up Revelation 1.1, here's the King James, and here's how the margin of the New American Standard that most of you have reads. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel. Or you could render it, he signified it by his angel. He signified it. And so the revelation is filled with signs, and most of the signs within the revelation are interpreted from revelation or from the Old Testament itself. I mentioned to you last time there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 300 are allusions to the Old Testament. And never once does it say, well, Moses said, or David said, or Isaiah wrote. No, it's just an allusion to the Old Testament. And so you have to go back and dig, and God has a purpose in that, because when you go back and dig, it sticks, and it changes your life. And so we're told that he has only a short time, and he's likened to a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, the word sea is used in both English and in the Bible, both sides of the Bible, either literally of an actual body of water or figuratively of a mass of people. He comes up out of the sea. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. We use it sometimes that way in English. We say, well, you look at that sea of people, so to speak. So if the Antichrist is coming up out of the sea, which we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we looked at a number of passages last time. If you weren't here, you might want to go back and listen to the message. We saw that that was symbolic from the Old Testament of the Gentile nations of the world. So if the Gentile nations of the world is the place in which the Antichrist comes, do we know from what Gentile nations he comes? And of course, the answer is yes. The book of Daniel identifies that the Antichrist, the man of sin, the little horn, the man of great countenance, he will come from a revived Roman Empire. 
There will be 10 nations. There'll be an 11th that will come up amongst them. And that 11th will overthrow the 10 and he will give leadership to that coalition of people and ultimately confirm himself to be God. Um, And so notice he comes up out of the sea. The sea. It's articular. So what sea is he referring to? The Galilean Sea, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea? No, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. How do we know that? Look at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. John is using the identical imagery that the prophet Daniel uses, describing that region of the world that the Roman Empire encompassed. It's from that region that this beast will come. And so here's a map of what the Roman Empire looked like in John's day, and here's a map of what it looks like in our day. Here's just the nations with different names on them. So both Daniel and Revelation teach that the Antichrist will come out of the former Roman Empire. And that's important, not only geographically, but it's important in terms of the kind of person he'll be. Uh, People will often ask, well, if the Antichrist comes out of this coalition from the former Roman Empire, does that mean he's a Gentile? And so we examined that last time. No, he will be a Jew. Ask any Jew today, do you think that the Messiah could be a Gentile? They'll laugh at you. What? He's going to be a Jew. That's what the Old Testament scriptures teach. He's from a descendant of Abraham. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he's from the family of David. They're not looking for some Gentile. They're looking for a Jew. And so we saw last time, biblically, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, how they entertained a false Christ. Why? It's written of prophetically by the prophet Zechariah. Why? Because of their unbelief. And Jesus made the same statement in John chapter 5, verse 43. He said, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Because they rejected the good shepherd, they will embrace a false shepherd. Now, if you remember, there are two words in the original language for another. There's alos, which means another of a similar or the same kind. And there's the word heteros, giving us our prefix, heterosexual or heterodoxy. Heterosexual means different sexes. Heterodoxy speaks in contrast to orthodoxy, to what is true. It's something different. And so he doesn't use the word heteros, but he uses the word alos. There's one who is coming who's going to be like me. In what sense? He'll be a Jew. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be from the house of David. In his name that John uses, he's called the Antichrist, or in this chapter, the beast. Now, it's not by accident that we speak of the Antichrist. Remember, Christos, Christ, Messiah, Messiah, same word, two languages. Anti-Christ, anti, the prefix is used in the New Testament of something that's the opposite of or something that comes in the place of. 
And certainly both are used of this particular man. He's the opposite of Jesus. How did Jesus come? He came in the Spirit's power. He emptied himself in the sense that Paul writes to the Philippians and that he laid aside the use of his divine attributes. Did he give up his divine attributes? No, he was still omniscient. All those things were true of it, but he laid aside the exercise of those divine attributes to depend upon the Spirit of God to minister through him because that's one of the things Messiah would do. The Spirit of God is upon me. I love the hymn. He emptied himself of all but love. That's not entirely true, but knowing and having read some of Charles Wesley's theology, I know what he meant by that. But he didn't give up any of his divine attributes. In some churches, they won't sing that hymn for that single phrase. No, he was as much God in the incarnation as he was in eternity past. But he chose to operate in the Spirit's power. What will the Antichrist do? He'll operate in the devil's power. So he comes up out of the sea. That identifies the geographical area that he comes from. But he also, as Revelation 11 informs us, he comes up out of the abyss. That speaks of his demonic power. He's a real human, but he's empowered by the evil one. We read here, and the dragon, that's Satan, remember, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. He gives him his power, his strength, his abilities. He gives him his throne. He receives dominion over the world. And third, he has great authority. And it's a word, exousia, to basically to do as you please. So the Antichrist will do as he pleases. Why? Because the single most powerful fallen angel in human history, in all of recorded biblical history, Satan will empower him. Now, this should make us realize that the Antichrist will ultimately be like Satan. He will act a lot like Satan. But Satan, of course, sometimes disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his ministers. He comes, and he will come initially as a peacemaker. He'll be Mr. Nice Guy. But eventually, he will take off Mr. Nice Guy mask, and he will operate with evil, wicked power, and with a viciousness and a cruelty that this world has never, ever seen. So we read now in verse 3, notice, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. I saw one as if it had been slain. It means in the original grammatical structure of the Greek, he was literally slaughtered. Now, sometimes Christians kind of kick at that because they understand what Jesus said, that a mark of his deity is he alone has the power to raise people from the dead. And so here's this man who comes, and he's dead, but he's brought back to life. So some Christians would say, well, he wasn't really dead. He just kind of faked death. No, he was dead. In fact, the same construction is used. If you don't know Greek, don't ever be intimidated by someone who uses Greek on you because you can almost always figure it out out of the English text. In Revelation 5, 6, John writes, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Identical construction in words. Was Jesus at one point literally dead? Yes. But he was raised. But he was more than raised, he was resurrected. 
And so if you were here last time, we looked at eight passages in the Bible where people were dead but were raised to life. Lazarus, maybe the most famous, Tabitha, Eutychus, so many. Elijah raised someone, Elisha did. Someone fell on Elisha's bones, came back to life. Eight different people. But all of those eight died again and were buried again. And yet Jesus was the first one ever to be resurrected from the dead. And because he is the firstborn of the dead, he can make this statement in John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he pleases. We sang that this morning. So what happens to the Antichrist? He's raised to life. It's a miracle. But he's not resurrected. Paul can say that Jesus is the first one ever. He's the first fruits of all creation. He is the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. So I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And this, of course, will accelerate his one world influence. And so we read in verse four, they worship the dragon, Satan. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast. And so the miracle of the Antichrist coming back to life is gonna lead to a more direct satanic worship. And that was always Satan's dream. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, He sought the worship of man. He even offered the Lord Jesus there in the time of the temptation. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because they were his to give at that point. Because when Adam lost them, Satan acquired them. And so he's called the God, small g of this world. But the world will worship the evil one. It will be his highest achievement, his finest hour. And he will use this counter miracle to really whack at the very foundations of the Christian faith that we preach. Now that's all by way of introduction. You're saying, when are you gonna get started? Hold on to your pew belts, here we go. There's a note-taking outline. Um, First, we want to begin, we're gonna look at three truths that are brought out in this section of scripture concerning this great religious reset. First, the global religion will defy the God of heaven. This coming global religion that is forming will defy the God of heaven. Look now at verse five. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words And blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, you remember, again, as this chart shows you, the tribulation period is seven years long. There is this event right in the middle of the seven years. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, we studied it from 2 Thessalonians 2 and from Daniel 9, where the phrase originates. And of course, Paul tells us that he will go into a rebuilt temple He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He'll take his seat in the temple of God and he'll claim to be God. Now here's a chart, by the way, that might be useful to you. Uh, As you would expect, since the Spirit of God inspired not only Daniel but John, there's a consistency all the way through Scripture. I was witnessing to a Mormon lady with her children this week and I said, look, there's a big difference between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. Number one, there's no fulfilled prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Number two, the Book of Mormon and the Bible cannot both be true. For instance, the Book of Mormon said Jesus would be born in Jerusalem. 
The prophets of old and the New Testament affirm he would be born and was born in Bethlehem. I said there are actually over 1,000 changes between the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon that Dr. Walter Martin did a fantastic job documenting. And he wrote a book, a classic on Mormonism and other cults called The Kingdom of the Cults. But between the 1830 edition and now the seventh edition of the Book of Mormon, there are over 1,000 changes. Now, I'm not talking about linguistic changes. There's 100,000 changes between the 1611 King James and what we call typically today. Those are language changes that reflect language updates because the English language has changed so much, and so a good translation says, what word today represents that word? I'm talking about a thousand errors, direct contradictions between the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon and the current edition they use. There are no such things in the Bible, no errors. It's infallible. And so Daniel speaks of a time, times, and half a time. That's like saying a year plus two years plus half a year. Daniel 7.25. He also speaks of the tribulation period being divided into three and a half years. The revelation uses the term 42 months. And it also uses like Daniel 1,260 days. So the Antichrist will take off his nice guy, peace negotiator, wonderful leader, mankind kind of mask, and he'll go into the temple and claim to be God, and evil will unfold. And so again, we read in verse 5, there was given to him can only do what God allows him to do. It was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. By the way, this is precisely what we study concerning the Antichrist when we work through the prophet Daniel. Remember, Daniel is writing approximately 700 years before John. John writes the very last book in the New Testament. You might want to put out in the margin Daniel 11.36 next to verse 5. And let me read it to you. Daniel 11.36, that prophet wrote, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And so this coming Antichrist is a blasphemer, and Revelation 13 illustrates and amplifies what Daniel writes about. He's going to come with braggadocious words. He's going to come with blasphemous words. He'll be a great speaker. Read the second half of Daniel 11. It's actually one of the most complete biographical sketches on the coming Antichrist. We don't usually think of the Old Testament that way, but the second half of Daniel 11, and I have some messages on it if you're interested, unfold a whole character sketch on him. He has a big mouth. He captures audiences. He will come with a passion, with an intellect. He'll get people to believe that up is down, that black is white. He'll get you to sell your mother into slavery, and you're thinking that you're serving God. He is evil beyond evil. In fact, his power and those that work with him are so great, Jesus said that the elect would be deceived if that were possible, but it's not. Furthermore, in verse 6, and he opened his mouth, this beast, this antichrist, in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. So this man of sin is the very mouth of hell. When he speaks, hell speaks. Blasphemies, blasphemeo. That's when you take something that is holy and you speak of it as evil. 
And so our president in the last two weeks has been harping on again the rights of transgender people. Look, I'm not against transgender people. I want them to be saved, and my heart is just breaking for some of these children where you have doctors mutilating their bodies and giving them drugs, and then to see some of them wake up one day and realize what they've done, and they're heartbroken. They say, well, we need to let this happen or they'll commit suicide. No, you're causing them to commit suicide by the evil. 20 years ago, those doctors that did such a thing would be arrested for child abuse. But you see, we live in a day of an upside-down mind. We rejected God. We didn't want anything to do with God. That's one of the aspects of this coming global economy religiously. They will worship the creation rather than the God who's blessed. We said in the 1960s, we're going to worship the God of evolution, so to speak. God didn't create the world. It just all happened and came together through a big bang. The only big bang in Scripture is the one that comes at the end where God's going to blow up the world and make a new heaven and a new earth. And so I remember my fourth grade teacher, Miss Weeks, telling me, I don't believe this, but I have to teach it. It had been in place, but now it was being put into shoe leather. And so I was taught evolution. And then a short throw later, prayer was outlawed, reading of the Bible was outlawed. Another case, the Ten Commandments couldn't be on the walls. And so did we do. We had to put policemen in the halls. There were no police on campuses when I was a child. What have we done? We've rejected the living God. We've worshiped the creation rather than the creator. That's Charles Schwab, as we'll see in a moment. That's the World Economic Forum. And so God gave us over to immorality, sensuality. That was the 70s and 80s. Did we repent? No. So God gave us over to phase two, to homosexuality. Did we repent? No. So God gave us over stage three to a reprobate mind, an upside-down mind. And so we have these people who are espousing things that are just wicked things. And that's what this man will do. He will spout wicked things, blasphemies against the living God. We're made in the image of God. God created us male and female. There's no middle gender. So when these people have babies and they say, well, what do you have? We don't know. You don't know? Well, we need to wait and see. Maybe your kindergarten teacher will tell us what we have. Oh, come on. God created people, male and female. This is absurd what is happening in our nation. And of course, next week, it was supposed to happen. The Senate, it passed in the House, is going to vote on whether or not, because they're afraid of what the Supreme Court may do. So they want to pass a law and define by law in the Senate and in the House that marriage between two homosexual people are legal. But they kicked it down the road until after the midterms. I want to tell you, if they pass that, we'll have the Supreme Court, the judicial branch. We will have the congressional branch. And no doubt our president will sign it. All three branches of the U.S. government redefining marriage. And if you think it's bad now, that will be the final nail in our coffin. God help us. 
So he opened his mouth in blasphemies to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle to those who dwell in heaven. But you see, God is going to use the horrors of the tribulation to bring the Jewish people to faith in Christ. Remember, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. And the chief function of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is, among other things, the conversion of the Jews. Remember, Moses wrote of this in Deuteronomy 4. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Likewise, Zechariah the prophet looks down the corridors of time to when the Jews will embrace the Messiah whom they rejected. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Again, this is precisely what Jesus taught is recorded in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Matthew, if you remember, reminds us that when Jesus on Palm Sunday came into Jerusalem, he wept over the city because he officially presented himself on the 173,880th day of Daniel's prophecy, and they ended up rejecting him. And so he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, and stone those who are sent to hear how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. And as predicted by Daniel, and has happened in 70 AD, Jesus said, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then Jesus makes this remarkable prophecy concerning the Jewish people. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look, the rapture of the church can happen at any moment. But the second coming of Jesus to the earth cannot happen. It cannot happen until they say, Baruch Hababa Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. When the Antichrist steps on the scene and he commits the abomination of desolation in a rebuilt temple, making himself out to be God, and we'll see something else that will accompany that that will lead to the eyes of the Jewish people being opened. All hell is going to break loose. Verse 6 says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Again, they will call what is holy evil. And he will blaspheme... God's tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Contextually, he's talking about people who had their heads cut off. And what is he going to say? Oh, you know, all these Christians, look what happened to them. They didn't follow me. And he'll make fun of them. The global religion will defy the God of heaven. Secondly, the global religion will destroy the saints of God. Not only will it defy the God of heaven, it will destroy the saints of God. Now, when you see the word saints in the New Testament and register this, especially in the Revelation, ask what context is the word being used? The Lord speaks about the saints of the Lord by the psalmist in the Old Testament. The Bible speaks of church saints. It speaks of tribulation saints. It speaks of coming millennial saints. 
So every time you see the word saint, it's not always in reference to the church. Look at verse seven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So verse six indicates Satan cannot harm the glorified saints that are in heaven who are in the tabernacle of God. So what does he do? He goes after those who are not sealed with a special seal on the earth. Remember, there's 144,000 Jews that cannot be killed. You could drop an atomic bomb on them and you couldn't kill them. These are God's missionaries who will preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will pull off what we haven't been able to do. And so Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world, and then the end shall come. He's talking about what's going to happen during the tribulation period. John documents that in Revelation 7. The gospel will go out to the whole world. So he can't kill those 144,000, can't even harm the two witnesses that will preach for the Temple Mount until it's time for them to be hurt. They're killed, and they stand, they're laid there on the streets for a few days. The world celebrates, and then they're brought up into heaven. But he can go after the rest of those people, tribulation saints. John has already mentioned this, put out in the margin, Revelation 6, 11. Let me read it to you. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So these are the tribulation saints who are dying, and how are they killed? Revelation 20, verse 4. Their heads are cut off. You won't renounce Jesus? That's it. Now, let me just say parenthetically here, notice they receive a white robe. And I hope you have a white robe waiting for you. You only have one if you've received Jesus as Lord. It speaks of the righteousness that is gifted. You need a righteousness that you can't earn. It has to be imputed. It has to be gifted to you. They are in white robes. And by the way, they are not in their resurrection bodies. Look, when I go to the funeral home and people are deep in grief and they say, oh, my loved one, he's up in heaven dancing in his new resurrection body, all these statements, it's not the time typically to correct them. I just let them grieve. I grieve with them. But they're not in their resurrection body. There's given some kind of temporary body. The tribulation saints, like the Old Testament saints, they're not resurrected until Daniel 12, 1 and 2, at the end of the seven years. The first that will get resurrection bodies will be the church saints. But they are given some kind of robe. So you say, if I die, do I just meet this disembodied spirit and I don't know who they are? No, you will recognize them. Just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable in the Mount of Transfiguration, so will your loved ones. But that's not their resurrection body. Moses and Elijah and Enoch aren't in resurrected bodies. You say, wait a minute, Enoch and Elijah were carried up into heaven. Moses was buried. They're not in their resurrection bodies Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. Somewhere in the transition, their human body was shed, and they were given this intermediate body. Look, you've got to hang a robe on something, so they're, 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 they're in something. So when your loved one dies, and they go to heaven, and you go and you see them before the rapture, you will know who they are. Now, further in Revelation 6 and verse 9, he says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain. Why? Because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. You know that testimony? It's the Greek word martoria, 
we get our English word martyr from it. These were martyrs for the faith. They had a testimony that they maintained. When threatened with death, they confessed Jesus. What would happen if some lunatic came in here and put a gun to your head and said, you renounce Jesus or I'll shoot you? What would you do? I have no doubt what I might do. Now, I might try to jump the guy and take his gun. But I can tell you, I won't renounce Jesus. We're going to cut your head off, tribulation saints. Then so be it. Because we are not going to renounce Jesus. And so again, here in Revelation 13 and verse 7, it was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints, can't make war with those who are in heaven, and to overcome them. So the Antichrist will not overcome the believers in a spiritual sense, but he will in a physical sense. And all nominal Christians who have not repented or have apostatized and who take the mark of the beast, they'll be safe. But the genuine saints of God, they will experience persecution like the world has never, ever seen. The global religion will defy the God of heaven. The global religion will destroy the saints of God. Third and finally, the global religion will delude the masses on earth. It will delude the masses on the earth. Look now, if you will, at verse 7. It was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. The Antichrist will succeed in total world domination. You say, well, how will he pull this off? Well, by persecution or reward, you have a choice. Or as 2 Thessalonians 2, as we studied, he will come with lying signs, wonders, and miracles, with false miracles. Many will believe that because they rejected the truth. He'll bedazzle the world. And certainly, as we'll see next time, through a one-world economy, you can't survive unless you give allegiance to the Antichrist. So even great nations like the United States assuming we're still a superpower, they will yield to this man. He comes over every tongue and tribe and nation. It will be one nation under a false god. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Some of your translations say, all the inhabitants of the earth. Or one translation says, all who live on the earth. But the Greek text says, all the earth dwellers will worship him. And that's important because this phrase, the earth dwellers, is used 11 times in the book of Revelation to describe unbelievers who live for this world only. They live for this life only. They're materialists. They're humanists. And as John underscores in a number of passages, they're involved in the occult and they're involved in sexual immorality. Now, you meet people every day who are not interested in the things of God. Why? Because they love their evil deeds. They're TLO people, this life only people. The good life is now. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone, notice, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The unbeliever who worships the Antichrist, according to this verse, his name is not written in the book of life. But the text says here, their names of those believers have been written from the foundation of the world. Uh, we used to have a little 
ditty we'd sing, there's a new name written down in glory that's not true. It's written before the foundation of the world. Now, maybe there's a check mark put next to the name after someone's converted. But the names are written in eternity past. You say, then it's all fixed. No, it's not. If God didn't know whose names would be in his book of life, he wouldn't be God. God is an omniscient God. And so Revelation 21 and 27 says, when it speaks of the new heaven and the new earth, it speaks of those who will enter heaven as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That doesn't take away from your free will. It just affirms the omniscience of an all-knowing God. The question is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If it's not, it's because you're a confirmed unbeliever. If it's written there, it means you're coming to faith. You say, well, I want to make sure it's written there. Then you better come to faith. <laughs> you, better you better repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. By the way, this phrase, it's difficult to put into English, looks both ways before the foundation of the world. Not only of those names that are written, but of Jesus who's slain before the foundation of the world. See, it was in the heart and plan of God for Jesus to come ever before he wrote the world into existence. It's not like Adam sinned and, oh, what are we going to do? Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And by the way, we are not victims from Adam. We're accomplices with Adam. We sinned in and with Adam. That's why we're incriminated with his sin. But in the heart and mind of God, because God loves man, but we were still free moral agents and we rebelled against God. It was in his heart and mind to die and bleed in our place as our substitute so that we could be forgiven. Ever before the tree was planted that the Lord Jesus would hang on, God had it in his heart to take on our humanity. God was in Christ reconciling the world through himself. Verse 9, he concludes, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's his way of getting your attention. What I'm about to say is very important. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So those destined for captivity because they live at this time in human history and are saved during this time, they will go to captivity. This is simply a, a warning of this coming persecution that will come on God's people. Some will be in prison, some will be killed. But there's a balancing truth. Justice will come. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. John is simply reminding us that those who persecute the people of God, God will ultimately deal with justly. Here is the perseverance, he says, in the faith of the saints. John is just writing about this coming trouble because this book was given not only to people who will read this during the seven-year period, but for us. Listen, dads, you need to be preparing your children in this day that we live in because persecution is coming. You say, well, is the World Economic Forum really a religious organization? You better believe it. It is a godless gang. Here's a picture of Klaus Schwab in his robe behind his podium. By the way, on page 218, under the heading of moral choices, 
I wrote it down. He said, there are no moral absolutes. And so what does he say? He says, what's good for the whole is good for the rest. As the majority goes, so the world should go. That's what this current administration is doing. We have an evil president. He is evil. He is the one who forced the hand of President Obama to redefine marriage. And we have an evil vice president who performs homosexual marriages. And they say, we are evil because we affirm that there's no such thing as transgenderism and we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Schwab is an evil man. Notice his robe. It looks somewhat Luciferian, I suppose. But notice the symbol on his robe and the symbol that's on his podium. There's a nine-pointed star, the star of Ishtar. It's known as the Enneagram. The modern-day Enneagram simply means, they they say it's a, a fusion between religion and philosophical traditions, and they embrace teachings from Roman Catholicism, from Kabbalah, from Buddhism, from Islam, from the Baha'i faith. This star of Ishtar, they say, is a symbol of, us, of people having involvement with cosmic deities. We'd call them demons. Look, when this man speaks, he's got the United Nations head. He's got the head of the International Monetary Fund. He has the head of the World Bank. He has presidents, kings, over 100 nations. And he's behind this podium. Do you think maybe there's one person who says, I wonder what those symbols are? They know what they are. Now, the only one who didn't really acquiesce was our former president. And when he went, he said, I don't believe in globalism. He said, I believe in America first. What was he affirming? He was affirming Acts 17, whether you like Donald Trump or not, he was affirming the biblical truth that there are boundaries in geographical settings that God made to make a nation a nation. But you see, that's all erased. And so you have these prominent icons. And notice, too, you have the bull with a cross positioned between his horns. That's the symbol for Mithraism. Mithraism is the worship of the creation. And so now the push on global warming. Notice the model. It's the Latin words for knowledge of immense power. It's Gnosticism. It speaks of an eternal world without a living God. Now, I just want you to see that there's this guy, Klaus Schwab, who has, by the way, over 700 people who work for him. And he has offices not just in Geneva, but New York, San Francisco, Beijing, Tokyo, and major cities of the world. He's got all these world leaders who come together. And you would have to be naive to think that there's not some religious component to this. You say, is this the great reset? No, this is the preset. This is the preset for the coming reset that the Antichrist will bring. But you can't have these things for a reset unless some things are in place. And they're coming into place, which should open your eyes up. Because Israel is back in the land. Globalism is growing. 
And these are all things that will take place before Jesus comes back. There's an economic reset, there's a governmental reset, and there's a religious reset. And we're going to see how all three blend together, but we're going to have to wait till next time because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Now, let me give some applications as we close. Three applications, very simple. Number one, while global religion will someday defy the God of heaven, there is growing defiance, and we must remain faithful. We must remain faithful. Someday God will make every wrong right, and someday those who have harmed God's people will be brought under the justice of God Almighty. The Apostle Paul underscores this same truth to the church at Thessalonica, who were under intense persecution, and he reminds them, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. It may not happen in your life, but it will happen to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not obey, to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey. It's a word to mean to listen under. They don't submit to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And what will happen? They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. We call that hell. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Persecution is growing. The epitome of all persecution will unfold during this seven-year period. But dads and moms, you need to be preparing your children and grandchildren today. They need to know that this is part of living in the world that we live in. They wanted to shut a school in Florida last week for the simple reason that they did not embrace transgenderism. Thank God there's a governor in that state that has a little backbone. But if your children don't know how to stand up, they will fold up. They need to be prepared. Look, they go to Clemson or USC or the Citadel or Harvard or Yale or any other institution. They're going to be loners in terms of their worldview. And they're going to be ostracized. And you need to prepare them because there's a growing darkness and hostility. I'm not discouraged. We're just learning that God is screwing in all the sockets of prophecy. I've read the end of the story. We're on the winning side. <laughs> Secondly, while global religion will someday destroy the saints of God, there is growing persecution, and we must not be fearful. We must not be fearful. Now, four times the phrase given to him was unfolded in our text. And it's a demonstration of God's sovereignty over Satan. I have them underlined in my Bible. The first half of verse 5, a mouth was given to him. The second half of verse 5, authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And verse 7, um, to make war was given to him. At the end of verse 7, authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. The Antichrist has four givens. He's able to blaspheme. He's able to lead. He's able to persecute. And... He is able to rule. Well, who gave him these freedoms? Well, obviously, Satan is the intermediate source. But Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow. allow. It's a delegated power. 
Indeed, Luther was correct when he said, the devil is God's devil. Satan is on a leash, as the book of Job documents. He has limited power, but his power is real. And his hatred is going to be expressed in a coming day like the world has never seen it, but it's beginning to happen now. And if we just stay on this course, it's not going to be easy to be an evangelical. By evangelical, I mean a Bible-believing Christian. It won't be easy. That's our reminder to walk with God. I was talking to a brother recently, and he said, I'm afraid of the devil. I said, you should be afraid of the devil because of the way you're living. You're out of fellowship with God. You've got every reason in the world to be afraid of the devil. But if you're walking with the Lord, you don't have to be afraid of the devil. You respect him, but you don't have to be afraid. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's like going into a zoo. There's a ferocious lion and And Satan is likened to a a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. You put your hand in the cage, you're toast. Stand outside the cage, you don't have too much to worry about. Satan was defeated at the cross. And as long as you walk with God, you'll be fine. Third and finally, while global religion will someday delude the masses on earth... There is a growing delusion that we need not be a part of. We don't have to be a part of this coming delusion. Verse 9, we just read it. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Did you notice that there's something missing? Seven times in chapters 2 and 3, it says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That was added. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's missing? The church. Because the church is gone. An open door in heaven lets the church in, and so the church is not mentioned again until chapter 19 when we come back with Jesus. Are you a member of the church? I didn't mean a local church, but the universal body of Christ. You need to be. And if you're not, You're headed for trouble and ultimately eternal trouble. Now, Father, thank you that you not only wrote the beginning, you wrote the end to help us, to equip us to walk with you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help someone who's here who's never received Jesus to call upon him in faith. For you promise whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. We ask it in his name. Amen.